And let's turn in our Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 9. And as we prepare to read God's Word, we'll stand and give honor to the Word of the Lord, for His Word is holy. And let's stand and, and give heed unto God's holy Word as we turn to Nehemiah 9. We'll start reading at verse 7 and read to verse 15. This is a prayer of the Levites unto the Lord. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out from Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give him the land of the Canaanite, of the Hittite, and the Amorite, of the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite, to give it to his descendants. And you have fulfilled your promise, for you are righteous. You saw the affliction of, your, of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry by the Red Sea. Then you performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly toward them and made, and made a name for yourself as it is this day. You divided the Red Sea before them so they passed through the midst of the sea on dry ground. And their pursuers you hurled into the depths like a stone into raging waters. And with a pillar of cloud you led them by day, and with a pillar of fire by night, to light for them the way in which they would were to go. Then you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven. You gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and laid down for them commandments, statutes and laws through your servant Moses. You provided bread from heaven for them for their hunger and brought forth water from a rock for them for their thirst. And you told them to enter in order to possess the land which you swore to give them. Let's pray. Our blessed God, help us by your Holy Spirit to understand and to believe these your holy words, that we would grow in grace, that we would grow in that realization that you are a God who is a covenant-keeping, promise-keeping, all-merciful, and all-loving God. And help us, we pray, to put our faith in you, not in man, and not in ourselves, not in anyone, but in you, O God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. There's a tendency that sometimes in life, and I think it's, it's part of American individualism, that we can be too focused on ourselves and our own life situation. And this can even be taken too far as for, even regards to our salvation in Christ. We might say to ourselves, well, I know that Jesus died for my sins and I'm forgiven of all my sins, therefore, that's all I need to know. And maybe because of that, 
Um, maybe people don't read enough of Holy Scripture. Maybe they don't study enough of what the Word of God says. But in today's text, we find that this is a motivation for us to remember redemptive history. And why should we, we remember redemptive history? Why should we love it? Because God loves it. How do I know God loves redemptive history? It's because the Holy Spirit inspired these Levites in writing down this wonderful, blessed prayer. God recalls in Holy Scripture redemptive history over and over again in the Old Testament. Um, it is done very often by the prophets. It was done um, in the Psalms. It was done here in Nehemiah. It's done in uh, many different portions of God's Word that there is a remembering of God's redemptive history and what He did all the way back from Abraham and calling the people to Himself. Um, again, it's that redemptive history for Israel extending from the calling of Abram, who became Abraham, through that deliverance of the, in Egypt from slavery, even into bringing them into the promised land. But that redemptive history is not finished because it points to something greater. Nehemiah 8 records for us a great deal of thanksgiving to God. If you look at that chapter, it's all full of praise and worship um, and thanksgiving unto God. And why were they thankful? Well, they were thankful because God had established them. Their walls were broken down or in disrepair, and uh, their gates were burned with fire. But God had his hand of favor upon Nehemiah. He sent uh, his man to help them, that those walls were, were rebuilt in 52 days. The surrounding nations realized that this had been accomplished with the help of their God. It was not something that was done only by the, the arm of man, but it was done by the help of God. Now again, they were having lots and lots of celebrations in chapter 8, um, an extensive amount of worship, including reading of a humongous portion of Scripture, and then following uh, in that festival of booze, or the Feast of Booze, they were reading Scripture daily. Now, if you study the law and you study Holy Scripture a great deal, oftentimes you see that your life doesn't meet up to the standard of Holy Scripture or to the law of God. So this extensive amount of reading of Scripture brought conviction of sin. And at the beginning of chapter 9, we have the people repenting and mourning over their sin, wearing um, sackcloth and throwing dirt upon their heads because they were, they were sorrowful over sin. They were confessing their sin. And then they have this gathering and this worship in chapter 9, and the Levites here are leading, you could say, a long, extensive prayer. I did read some authors, uh, some scholars on this matter, and they think it could have been something of a psalm or a song. Uh, there's nothing that says that, but you notice here that in a lot of your Bibles, it's been put in an indention, like verse of sorts. So you could say it's very, it has the flavor of the psalms, doesn't it? It is a glorious prayer, and that extends from verse 5, or the middle of verse 5, all the way to the end of the chapter at uh, verse 37. And we'll be studying that prayer in some, some weeks to come. Again, this rather long prayer was led by the Levites according to verses 4 and 5. 
Um, verses 5 and 6, as we studied last week, it gives adoration to God as creator of the earth, the seas, and the heaven of heavens, and all of the angelic hosts, the angels. Today's text, or portion of this prayer, it's praising God for being the one who keeps promises, for being the covenant-keeping God. And this truth is evident in his redemptive works that extend all the way from Abraham, even through the entry into the promised land. As we look at today's text in a whole, I want us to understand it, uh, that we are to trust God because he keeps his promises. We are to trust God because he keeps his promises. And we'll see this in three main points. God's fulfilled promise to Abraham, God's deliverance of Israel, and then God's deliverance through Jesus Christ. Or if you wanted, you actually could shorten this outline that God fulfills promises. God fulfills promises. To Abraham, to Israel, and to the elect in Christ. It's an alternate outline. Let's look at this first main point. God's fulfilled promise to Abraham. Verses uh, 7 through 8. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out from Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him <coughs> to give him the land of the Canaanite, of the Hittite, and the Amorite, of the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite, to give it to his descendants. And you have fulfilled your promise, for you are righteous. God set his electing love upon Abram when he was 75 years old and caused him to leave the land of his, of his family. Uh, God made great promises to Abram, uh, which later would be Abraham. First is in Genesis 12, that he promised to make him a great nation. Uh, and these are in your outline. Uh, Genesis 12, 3, also he promised that, and saying unto him, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Genesis 12, 3. Um, later on, Genesis 17, uh, 1 through 8, God changed his name from Abram to Abraham. He gave him more details regarding uh, this covenant of promise. And uh, I want us to look there. Let's uh, keep our place, but we'll also turn to Genesis 17. Genesis 17. This is a crucial passage in the Old Testament. Genesis 17, starting verse 1. Now when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face, and God uh, talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you 
throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Genesis 17. Now, the wonderful, blessed promises made to what we call now Abraham, um, but it's also something that was carried on to his son Isaac. In Genesis 26, it's in your outline, uh, he says, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven. I will give you your, I will give your descendants all these lands. By your descendants, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So in keeping with this generational covenant promise, after Isaac has a son, uh, Jacob, God uh, spoke to Jacob, Isaac's son, and Abraham's grandson, saying, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abram, uh, Abraham, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants, and your descendants also will be like the dust of the earth. Genesis 28. Now keep in mind that the fulfillment of these promises made to Abraham did not come to pass for hundreds of years. And if you would say the giving of the promised land was the absolute fulfillment, you would be wrong. Because the New Testament goes forth and says that the promises made to Abraham are fulfilled through those who have faith in Christ. And we'll look at that in a little bit. Next, we'll see God's deliverance of Israel, or God's promises kept to Israel. And this is covered in uh, verses 9 through 15, yet we need to break it up for a little bit. Let's look first at Israel's deliverance from slavery. Verse 9, You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry by the Red Sea. And when God heard their cry, he answered them by sending them a deliverer by the name of Moses. And when he appeared to Moses at the burning bush, Moses wasn't sure how he was going to speak to the people or whether they would listen to him. But God told him his name. He said, my name is Yahweh, the great I am. And tell them that my name is the I am. And then he also said this, according to Exodus 3. He, God told him to gather the elders together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite to a land flowing with milk and honey. It's so interesting that undoubtedly that the promises made to Abraham, promises made to Isaac, the promises made to Jacob, whose name later became Israel, those promises were carried down and passed on from generation after generation, even while the people were in Egypt. And I'm sure many of them prayed and said, Lord, where is that land that you promised us? Lord, why are we under this 
terrible burden of slavery. Didn't you promise our fathers a land? Where, O oh God, is the fulfillment of your promises? Well, it comes hundreds of years later as then Moses goes over. Uh, it talks about the, the Levites then record how exactly God carries out the promises in delivering his people from Egypt. Look at Nehemiah 9. Go back to Nehemiah 9, 10 and 11. It says, <coughs> Nehemiah 9, 10 and 11. Then you performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly toward them and made a name for yourself as it is this day. You divided the sea before them. So they passed through the midst of the sea on dry ground and their pursuers you hurled into the depths like a stone into raging waters. God did signs and wonders and that through, through Pharaoh he hardened his heart so that he would show forth his miraculous works in bringing out his people by a mighty hand. And that's what God did according um, to Holy Scripture. And next, they go into this history of how God led and preserved Israel in the wilderness. Uh, verses uh, 12 and 15. He says, With a pillar of cloud you led them by day, and with a pillar of fire you led by night uh, to light their way in which they were to go. And skip to verse 15. He says, You provided bread from heaven for them for their hunger. You brought forth water from a rock for their thirst. God provided for their sustenance. He didn't leave them to starve or to die of thirst in the desert, but he provided for them uh, both food and water. Miraculously, bread from heaven, which is also called that manna. God gave Israel his law in verses uh, 13 and 14. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them, from heaven, you gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. So you made known to them your holy Sabbath and laid down for them commandments, statutes, and law through uh, your servant Moses. So God called them to be a special people and gave them his holy law. No other people on the face of the earth had God reveal himself to them in this way. It was a miraculous gift to give them his holy revelation, to call them to be a special and holy people. And then God fulfilled his promises by then eventually bringing them into the promised land. This account here doesn't mention, uh, it, it mentions what happened in some ways during the wilderness wanderings, but it goes on to say in the second half of verse 15, you told them to enter in order to possess the land which you swore to give them. So earlier in the text, it talks about God uh, having fulfilled his promise. Uh, this is at the end of uh, verse 8. God having fulfilled his promise because he is righteous. You fulfill your promises, O God, because you are righteous. Well, here... They're reminiscing again that God fulfilled his promise that he gave them the land that he swore unto them. 
But that promise was not fulfilled until a great deal long after Abraham had already passed from this life. All of this redemptive history is important. We should study it. But one of the main reasons we ought to study redemptive history is because it all points to Jesus Christ. The redemptive history of the Old Testament points to our deliverance through Jesus Christ. God fulfills his promises to the elect through Christ. So God's deliverance of Israel was a foreshadowing of that ultimate deliverance from sin and the power of the grave accomplished by Jesus Christ. Yes, it's terrible to be in slavery to the Egyptians, but I would argue that it's far worse to be in slavery to the devil and to the power of sin and to the fear of the grave. But Jesus Christ gives freedom, forgiveness of sin, and he helps uh, his people to have power uh, over even all of these things. Victory over all of these things through Christ. Nehemiah 15, uh, 9, Nehemiah 9, 15 uh, says, You provided bread from heaven for them for their hunger. That's that manna that rained down from heaven. Even that pointed to Jesus. I want us to turn, keep your place in uh, Nehemiah, but turn to John 6. <clears throat> when we think of the manna in the Old Testament, I want you to think of John 6 and what is revealed through Jesus Christ. John six twenty six and following. Jesus said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. In other words, you want another meal. That's why you seek me. But he says this, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father uh, God has sent his seal. Therefore he said to him, What shall we do so that we may seek the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, What then, or what then do you do for a sign? so that we may see and believe you. What work will you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have not seen me, yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, 
that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is the bread of heaven. Jesus Christ is that manna that has come down from heaven. The manna was only a type, was only a prefigurement, but Jesus Christ is the absolute truth of that manna from heaven. He is that holy bread that has come down from heaven. And not in a literal sense, but in a spiritual sense, unless you feed upon Christ by faith, you will die. You will perish. You must feed on Christ to have eternal life. Jesus Christ must be your sustenance. Nehemiah 9.15b goes on and says, You brought forth water from a rock for them to thirst. And uh, that's when uh, the situation, remember when Moses, the first time when they were complaining of thirst, Moses was told to strike the rock. He struck the rock, water flowed from the rock. That's recorded in Exodus 17. Um, but in Paul, speaking um, of the Jewish fathers, wrote this in 1 Corinthians 10. All ate of the same spiritual food. All drank from the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. And the rock was Christ. According to Paul, in 1 Corinthians 10, the rock that gave them water was a prefigurement, a type of Christ. He calls it Christ. That water from the rock. Um, remember in um, Numbers 20, why uh, did Moses strike the rock again? You might wonder why God was even so harsh. Well, not, let's not say it that way. Why did God discipline Moses in such a fashion? Can't say God is harsh because he's holy and good and just. But why did God discipline Moses in such a fashion? after he struck the rock again? And the answer is twofold. God clearly told Moses, speak to the rock before their eyes so that it may yield its water. He was told to speak to the rock the second time. Well, Moses didn't listen to the Lord. Instead, he struck it because he was angry at the people. And God's verdict was this. He told Moses that he was not treating him, the Lord, as holy in his sight before the people. Therefore, Moses was not allowed to enter the promised land. After all of his struggle uh, with this people, enduring these people, he was not allowed to enter the promised land because he didn't treat God as holy. Now, that's that's what the verdict was. What's the theological reason, you might say, why that rock could not be struck again? Well, if that rock represents Jesus, Jesus Christ was to be struck down for sin once and for all. He could only be struck down once. Hebrews 10 says that having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, Jesus sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus Christ offered a sacrifice. He was struck down by the hand of the Father once and for all for sin. He was not to be struck down again and again and again. And that's why we find problems with the Roman Catholic Mass that when they raise up what they call the Eucharist, which they say is truly, literally the blood of, and, body, and the, truly the body of Christ, when they lift up the Eucharist, they, they lift it up and say, this is the body of Christ. But also, in that Mass, they say, may this sacrifice be acceptable to you, O God. 
It's a re-sacrificing of Christ every Mass. Well, Jesus Christ was sacrificed once and for all. He doesn't need to be re-sacrificed again and again and again. The rock should be stricken once to bring forth that water. Christ was stricken only once for sin. Now, as we read, read earlier in John 6, Jesus said, Whoever believes in me will never, never thirst. Jesus is that, that true water that if you drink of him, you will never thirst again. God gave his law on Mount Sinai. And Jesus, on his Sermon on the Mount, gave the fulfillment, or actually, he gave the full and complete spirit of the law uh, in his preaching on Mount Sinai. So again, on Mount Sinai, Jesus gave the full and complete spirit of the law when he got up to the mountain, he sat down and he preached that glorious Sermon on the Mount. And one thing that we learn from that glorious Sermon on the Mount is the law is not just a matter of what goes on from our lips, what happens with our bodies, where our, our feet take us, what we do with our bodies. It's a matter of the heart. Jesus gave that true interpretation of the matter of the law, that it is a matter of the heart, and that teaches us that we sin daily in thought, word, and deed. The good news of the gospel is twofold regarding the law. Yes, even though we fail to keep the law, which is a definition of sin, even though we fail to keep the law, Jesus Christ by faith has paid for all of our failures to keep that law, for all of our sins, past, present, and future. But Jesus Christ is the only one who has obeyed the law perfectly in thought, word, and deed. From the moment he came into the world to the moment that he died on the cross, he obeyed God's law perfectly. And the good news of the gospel is that even Jesus Christ has accounted, reckoned, considered his obedience as yours by faith if you trust in him. What's even more glorious is that how Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham. If you have saving faith in Christ, God's promises to Abraham have been fulfilled in you. And there's two passages here. Galatians 3.29 If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. I think some of the Jews forgot that God said that he was going to make not just a nation, Israel, he was going to make the blessing of Abraham extend to many nations. And that ultimate seed through which the blessing comes is Christ. Christ is this, of the seed of Abraham through whom all the nations who cling to him by faith shall be blessed. 1 Corinthians 20 says, The promises of God in him that is in Jesus Christ are yes. Therefore also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. God fulfilled his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through Jesus. Fulfilled in you, if you have faith. If you have faith, again, you are a child of 
you are one who is an heir according to the promise. You could say you're a spiritual child of Abraham. Now, bringing them into the promised land, mentioned at the end of uh, verse 15, it recalled how God allowed them to enter in and possess the land which he swore to give them. He kept his promise by giving them that land. But I believe that the promised land there in the Middle East is only a glimpse. It's only a glimpse of the fulfillment of the promise in which God has given. God will one day cleanse this earth with fire and he will recreate a new heavens and a new earth where, where righteousness dwells. The new Jerusalem will descend from heaven down to earth and the stars and the sun will no longer give their light, but the glory and the light of that new Jerusalem will be Jesus himself. Jesus Christ, as the fulfillment of the promises made to the saints of old, will be the one who is that glorious fulfillment in giving us not just a promised land, but a glorious, promised, blessed paradise, planet Earth, and all of the new heavens and a new earth to enjoy. I don't know about you, but I would rather take a glorious new heavens and new earth rather than just a piece of property there in, in uh, the Middle East. God fulfilled his promises to Abraham. You could say he fulfilled it to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But those promises were not fulfilled till hundreds of years later, and they are still being fulfilled in the saints here and now. To Israel, uh, whose name was Jacob, of his of the twelve tribes, God fulfilled the promises by giving them that promised land. Again, that promised land is just a glimpse of the glory of the new heavens and the new earth. To the elect in Christ we are to be more and more interested in Old Testament redemptive history because God loves it and because it all points to Jesus Christ. The promises of God through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, through David, Nehemiah, the saints of old, have all come unto us. And in him, those promises have been made sure. They are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. The Old Testament and the New Testament both testify that God is a promise-keeping, loving, merciful, covenant-keeping God. And I want you to turn with me to a closing hymn that we will sing soon, 243. 243. How firm a foundation... You saints of the Lord is laid for you in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? If you cannot trust, if you cannot trust God through Jesus Christ, who can you trust? Family will fail you. Friends will fail you. Church members will fail you. Man will fail you. God, through Jesus Christ, will never fail you. Look at the sixth stanza. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, 
I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That so, that soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no never, no never forsake. God will keep his promises to you who have fled to Jesus. Flee to Jesus if you have not done so. Ask for him to have mercy upon you that you would cling to him and to his gospel promises. All the promises in Jesus Christ or yes and amen, and there's something to rejoice over. Let's pray together. Our blessed Lord, we, we ask that you would help us to remember your glorious promises that have been fulfilled in your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have loved your people from of old, that you have made great and glorious promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and that we are heirs and descendants by faith, that we are children of Abraham by faith in this blessed Lord Jesus. Help us, we pray, to lean upon Christ, to cling to his promises with all that we have and with all that we are. Forgive us of our sins, Lord, and help us to grow in holiness and gratitude for the wonderful works that you've done. For we ask all these things in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's stand and sing our hymn of dedication, How Firm a Foundation, 243. Let's stand and sing to God's glory, 243.